intend to tie up Donald Trump in 2024 in a host of legal cases. What you see here is a sampling of them. Donald Trump has four different criminal investigations going on as we speak. He's got the classified document case down in Florida uh, for yep. Mar-a-Lago classified documents. We all remember the raid. You got the Georgia election investigation, which is this is uh, the Fulton County DA Fannie Willis looking into what happened as far as votes in Georgia after the election. You got the January 6th investigation under Jack Smith. And then don't forget about Alvin Bragg here in New York City. A number of different, it's convoluted, but criminal. You mentioned three criminal, or four criminal, but there's one that's dominated headlines recently, which is the civil investigation, which is still ongoing. Yeah, that's Letitia James in New York City. But she's not the only civil investigation going on. So while there's four criminal investigations. The American regime's lawfare against political opponents, dissidents, and citizens. Welcome back to the Rob Manus Show. We're broadcasting live on RobManus.com and at Rob Manus on Spaces, X Spaces, Simulcast, uh, Getter, and uh, at Facebook Live. So we're back, and we've got a great show today. Well, lawfare is an aggressive use of the judicial system, and it's used to suppress information intimidate citizens and interfere with legitimate public processes such as an election. The United States government is practicing it on steroids as we see the Department of Justice or Injustice continuously go after Donald Trump in the middle of his presidential campaign. It's so blatant that the special prosecutors openly trying to align trial dates with major primary dates. Not surprising, Many of these so-called attorneys don't even know the Constitution they say or they're, that they're defending. DOJ isn't working alone, though. The Department of Homeland Security is actually practicing a form of lawfare against every American citizen by its abuse of immigration laws on the books to bring in millions of illegal aliens, destroying America's shared cultural values and burdening government assistance systems while not getting enough benefits to Americans in a timely manner such as homeless veterans. What we're excited to have as our guest today, former U.S. Department of Justice double assistant attorney general in the Trump administration and Center for Renewing America as senior fellow and director of litigation, uh, Jeff Clark. Jeff, welcome to the Rob Manus Show, sir. It's good to have you with us. Well, it's good to be with you, Colonel. Uh, you know, and, and you could not have picked a uh, more, uh, you know, newsworthy, concentrated, uh, cycle to have, uh, you know, scheduled me to come on by coincidence. So I'm glad to be here. Yeah, better lucky than good any day, I say. Uh, so uh, this has uh, been a fortuitous uh, uh, scheduling moment, and I appreciate you giving us your time. I've, I've actually been catching a little snippets of news throughout the day, and you're, you're a busy man. Have you been able to get out of the chair and get some lunch? <laughs> I did actually have a very nice uh, lunch today at one of my favorite uh, places. So, uh, yeah, but it has been a busy media day uh, for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's because something like what happened in Colorado is in my sweet spot, right? It's it's yeah. kind of, it's complicated, it's, uh, it's juicy. And, uh, you know, luckily, I think there are enough uh, you know, commentators or showrunners out there who realize I can try to help uh, people understand it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, I've covered a couple of episodes where the issue uh, has been brought up about the Colorado case and the other cases to get Trump off the ballot using the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Uh, and one question 
that I have that keeps coming up over and over from us lay people that just read the Constitution. Okay, mm -hmm. well, not attorneys, uh, but I did take an oath to it, so I've read it. Uh, and Section 5 of the 14th Amendment says that Congress has the power to enforce the elements in, in essentially in that amendment through legislation. Yes. How does that pertain to, and isn't there a case to be made that that has not happened in the case of President Donald J. Trump? Yes. So uh, the 14th Amendment is, uh, you know, unique in that it kind of carries its own ability for Congress to pass new laws that then tie back into the 14th Amendment. Usually Congress, right, you know, especially for the Bill of Rights provisions, right, there, there's not an equivalent to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment in the, uh, in the Bill of Rights. So Congress can create new statutes and they can create new causes of action, right, but they, uh, they're not specifically tied to particular amendments, right? Like it's not like there's a second right. amendment section two that says, hey, you know, Congress can basically, uh, uh, you know, write something about how you enforce gun rights. Um, so, but for the 14th Amendment, there is that kind of provision. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, this is something you probably haven't thought about, but there's a whole vast body of law about 11th Amendment immunity, which is the immunity of states to be hauled into federal court. And that immunity cannot be set aside if Congress is regulating under the Commerce Clause because the 11th Amendment, uh, being even after the Bill of Rights, came after the Commerce Clause in the main body of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. But uh, Section 14, Section 5 legislation can override uh, state uh, sovereign immunity under the 11th Amendment. So it's a very unique power. And here, Congress, if they've used it at all, they used it only to adopt a criminal statute that makes insurrection a crime. But what we know is that President Trump has never been charged with that crime, let alone convicted of that crime. And for that reason, it violates his due process rights for four justices. And wait till I tell you about the mechanism by which they did this. It even you know, uh, exacerbates the due process problem. But just on their own say-so, four justices find that uh, President Trump engaged in insurrection no jury trial, no grand jury indictment before that, no criminal information, nothing like that. The whole criminal process totally ignored. Therefore, Congress's Section 5 enforcement powers have been uh, ignored. And mm. the, it's another way in which this Colorado decision is, is unconstitutional. But here's the even worse way in which uh, due process has been violated. You know, how did the four out of seven Colorado Supreme Court justices uh, purport to find that President Trump had engaged in insurrection, even assuming January 6th was an insurrection. That's another defense, right? There is, as I said earlier today, a couple of problems with this decision. But let's just say arguendo, you know, for the sake of argument, that uh, there was an insurrection on January 6th. Um, you know, what's the evidence that President Trump engaged in it? All they come up with is they cite to the January 6th report. And they say, and you might say to yourself, well, why isn't that hearsay? Well, it is hearsay. There's an exception to hearsay for official government reports, right? But the Supreme Court is, the US Supreme Court has created a test for that. And that test has now been received into Colorado law by the Colorado Supreme Court. And it's clear that the January 6th committee report totally flunks that. The main reason is that it's biased. It's a total anti-Trump hit job by people who voted to uh, uh, you know, impeach President Trump in the House 
right? And then it went to the Senate where he was acquitted. That really also should be the end uh, of this matter, right. the fact that he was acquitted in the Senate. That's one of the reasons in the cornucopia as to why this is a crazy decision. But, you know, as I uh, gave as an example, right, let, let's say, I don't know, you were fighting about uh, like a TV license or something, right? Just as a contract matter. Mm -hmm. But yeah. there were some findings in an official report by the FCC about the nature of that uh, that license. You could potentially submit as an exception to hearsay that FCC report, right? Because it's not biased in favor of any particular party, right? It's just sort of describing the license. But to try to say that this uh, hatchet job by Benny Thompson and his crew and Liz Cheney, the Trump hater, and Adam Kinzinger, you know, the sort of, um, you know, mental lightweight, that that is an unbiased government report is the most ridiculous thing you can imagine, especially because none of President Trump's lawyers could cross-examine any of the witnesses. There yeah. were no Republican uh, members and therefore, you know, who were selected by the conference and therefore no Republican lawyers, no minority counsel who could cross-examine the witnesses in closed door, star chamber-like depositions. So it's a mockery of due process. It's completely violated President Trump's due process rights. And, and that's about, you know, four or five different fruits that fit into the cornucopia as to why this is a utterly corrupt and baseless decision. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people on the side that I'm on the, and that you're on, the, the, the side that says, you know, let the electorate make the decisions in this are, are still in a state of disbelief. You mentioned the, the, the impeachment uh, acquittal uh, mm -hmm. on this issue, right? Uh, I mean, technically, yes. it was on this issue of insurrection. Uh, yes. And, uh, does that fit into, now Congress spoke, on that by quitting the president. Does that fit into the section five piece of the 14th amendment? Uh, I think enforcement part. I think that's very astute of you to ask Colonel. And I believe it does. There's a paper that I'd like to send your uh, viewers and listeners to that is on the citizens for renewing America website uh, that I wrote about the 14th amendment section five uh, mm -hmm. issues and, and section three attack on president Trump. And you know it sets out two theories. One of them is the one that you've just touched on, that the second impeachment uh, in at the start of 2021, uh, you know, which was done without any House inquiry, right? And so then you wonder why do House Republicans need a special pre-inquiry stage for uh, President Biden? But you know the the Democrats have already burned through that bridge. But you know they they impeached him, and there was one impeachment article, and that one impeachment article was that President Trump had engaged in insurrection on January 6th uh, and or he had uh, provided aid and comfort to the insurrectionists. That was their article. It failed. It didn't get the requisite supermajority in the Senate. And I think that that is, and President Trump has argued that that is uh, double jeopardy or, you know, uh, res judicata, depending on how you kind of look at the nature of the impeachment proceeding. It is a trial-like procedure, right? There's a trial in the Senate. There were prosecutors from the House who prosecuted that case, and then President Trump's lawyers went up to defend. And this is precisely why the Supreme Court set up the impeachment process and the trial process to require the Chief Justice of the United States to appear at the trial and preside over it, right? Now, right. Chief Justice Roberts didn't do that here for the second impeachment. I submit because he knew that the second impeachment was totally beyond uh, the Senate and, and the House's power, 
because it was the first impeachment ever of someone after as a, of a president after they'd left office, right? So what did they do? They just came up with an airsats uh, presider since they didn't have the chief justice. They came up with uh, uh, Leahy, Patrick Leahy, the senator. They said he was the presider. He was making the balls and strikes on evidence admission and the like, right? So once that uh, uh, acquittal occurred, I think that had the effect of blotting out this theory. So the whole January 6th committee, the whole uh, process of bringing a January 6th case like in uh, federal court in DC, like Jack Smith has brought, all these things are essentially second, third bites at the apple. And uh, you know that's another reason why the Colorado Supreme Court is all wet here because you know, they're purporting to make their own decision. Like they don't, they don't get a vote in the Senate trial process, Colonel. Right. Um, and uh, so their votes are irrelevant. And the fact that they think there was an insurrection and that they think that Donald Trump participated in it, you know, no one should give, uh, you know, uh, two wits about. Yeah, I told my audience when that the lower judge slipped in her her decision that the, that the evidence showed that he had committed insurrection. Uh, that that was going to be a problem later on, and that they would hang their hat on that if they got a chance to. It looks like that's what the Colorado Supreme Court did. Uh, lawyers, uh, attorneys like you, you use a phrase, fruit of the poisonous tree, right? Or fruit of the poisonous root or root of the poisonous tree. Uh, <laughs> all of that stems back to that report in the J6 committee report. Is that what you're alluding to? Is that this decision being based on that uh, the, the, and the lack of due process and those kind of things. Yes. I mean, that, that at a, at a 40,000 foot level, that's a good analogy. I mean, in the, in the law, right. When you talk about the fruit of the poisonous tree, it's really a fourth amendment thing that, you know, if, if there's been a violation of your fourth amendment rights with an invalid, uh, search or seizure, or, you know, warrant wasn't properly issued, uh, then, you know, what they find in the warrant can be excluded as the fruit of the poisonous tree of the defective warrant or the defective authorization. But it's it's similar here, right? In that you cannot use a government report that has no indicia of reliability because it is a political document, not a you know quasi-judicial document, and mm-hmm. then say that that can kind of sub in for due process, right? Like even if the NTSB, right, right the National Transportation Safety Board, they do like a an inquiry about why did an air crash or a train crash occur, right? They they will bring in witnesses, right? They'll hear from them and they could be represented by counsel and they will make points on both sides. And the you know members of the board uh, might you know, disagree with each other, right? Like this was set up as a Nancy Pelosi one-way railroad job monolith and it, it cannot possibly be taken as providing due process. Absolutely. Well, let's go over to the Spaces Live audience and take a question because I know they had questions. I, I spent some time with the audience before the show, as you heard. Uh, uh, so Kat, Shell, uh, whoever's got a question for Jeff over there on this, especially this Colorado issue, uh, fire away. Um, I'm going to ask something real quick and then I'll get to Wib if we have a chance. And now Fred. Um, I had my hand up and I wasn't going to do it. But hey, Jeff, um, we already saw a story about Lieutenant Governor of California is already coming in lockstep with Colorado and rushing, rushing a case to try to remove him off California's ballot, um, which we I fully expected to see in blue states. Obviously, they're going to all try to rush to do this. I want to ask you, I'm going to ask you straight up, like, do you think he's got a good chance of getting this overturned at the Supreme Court level? Because uh, I'm afraid that people are just like thinking it's a slam dunk. And right now, 
with a, with the tone and tenor. I'm just a little bit nervous about it. I just wonder what your take was. Sure. So look, I think that this decision is an abomination. It should be quickly reversed. Uh, you know, maybe not for purposes of your uh, spaces uh, questioners at some point. Uh, Colonel, maybe you could ask me about how this weird stay was put in place by the Colorado Supreme Court, because that relates to this. But let me try to stick to something that's that's more understandable for this purpose and say, look, you know, you, you can never count chickens, uh, especially not with the Supreme Court when you got nine very independently minded uh, people. Um, I think the the liberals on the Supreme Court tend to more often vote as a block. But not entirely. Sometimes there are very weird constellations of justices, depending on how things strike them. So I, I think, though, that that uh, they're going to want to take this case uh, because, you know, I think they're going to want to put themselves in the posture where the American people are the choosers of who becomes the next president. They, you know, they, they I think one reason why they shied away from taking any election cases in 2020 was because they had seen the massive blowback on the left and in the uh, law professoriate uh, in, in 2000 after Bush v. Gore of, you know, you guys shouldn't be deciding presidential elections. You know, you, you, you should have gotten out of the way, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Al Gore otherwise would have been president. I don't I don't buy those arguments. And I think the Supreme Court did the right thing in Bush versus Gore. But I think that that we have a Supreme Court that that especially under Chief Justice Roberts leadership seems to think uh, that it should try to not wade into some of these controversies. Uh, but I think that that here, if you have a state Supreme Court, right, and then the potential for 49 other state Supreme Courts, right, to start deciding for themselves to throw candidates of one party or the other off the ballot, like this is something that that unravels and and could you know, pull down the whole system. I think they'll see that the implications of this are important enough uh, that they should uh, that they should stop this. And and then when I explain the stay, then you'll realize that you know maybe that'll make you a little more uh, optimistic. So I'll give that as a teaser. Yeah, one more question, Cat. Uh, Go ahead, Whip. Hey, Colonel. Um, you and I have discussed this before. Uh, a few months back, but I'd like to hear Jeff's take on whether or not uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, even applies to somebody that's the president of the United States and has only ever been the president of the United States. He hasn't been a congressman or a senator or any other officer of the court since the president isn't technically an officer. Yeah, great question. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I adverted to my paper, which again is up on the Citizens for Renewing America website. Uh, so if you Google my name, 14th Amendment, Citizens Renewing America, you should pop it up pretty easily. Um, the I mentioned the second, the, actually the second point in the paper is the one you started with, uh, Colonel, about uh, the fact that the impeachment, second impeachment failed. Um, the first point in the paper is the one that the caller has just raised, which is that the office of the president is not listed on the uh, offices to which uh, you're disqualified from potentially if all the other parts of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment can be met. So mm -hmm. I, I, was, I described this actually uh, earlier today. The, the, uh, there's a list, okay, and the list proceeds in hierarchical uh, uh, order. It's not something that um, is a random uh, thing, right? right. It, it starts with senators, then it goes to congressmen. You get the mention explicitly of electors of the president and vice president, right? Mm -hmm. 
but curiously, not the office of the president or the vice president themselves. And then you get into other officers. So this actually lets me do a little bit of Latin. Um, so, you know, we can have, uh, you know, Colonel Manis, um, you know, law school class a little bit here. So there are, you know, two principles of interpreting statutes uh, that are often invoked when you're dealing with lists, especially one of the two I'm going to describe. Um, you know, there's a, a Latin canon, nostitur associus, which basically means words are known by the company they keep. And the other canon is a justem generis of, of, a, of a like kind. So the second one is especially relevant. Sometimes they're conflated, but the second one's especially relevant because if you have a list of offices, right, you can <clears throat> infer something from the list. So whenever I watch CNN or MSNBC, what I see them doing is they uh, will say, uh, well, the 14th, it's a no-brainer that the 14th Amendment Section 3 applies to block Trump if it's found that he engaged in an insurrection, which, of course, they've been promoting nonstop since January 6th, like including on that very day. Uh, the talking points went out. That's the narrative. That's what they maintain uh, because it says that it applies, you know, basically to any officer. But that's the last item on the list. And what the canon does is it tells you what, uh, you know, it, it helps to confine what is on the list. And so if you're dealing with a hierarchical list, it gives you the idea of, look, though in that what's in that category at the end, the catch-all category about officers in the United States, wasn't a backdoor secret way to sneak in the president who they didn't mention, even though they mentioned electors for the president explicitly. Right. It's a way to capture the officers who are beneath those who are already listed. And I think that's just like the most elementary uh, way to read it for anyone who's studied statutory interpretation, which for law students sometimes takes, you know, the 2L year or the 3L year. It's often not a, a, a first year law school proposition, but, you know, people who, who at least are going to be litigators study that, uh, take that class. It's even good for transactional lawyers because they got to read a lot of contracts and things. So, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the mainstream leftist media, uh, the hacks who attack, uh, on, you know, in lawfare. I've coined this term now, uh, Colonel, called journal lawfare, where we have these fir <laughs> former leftist prosecutors who are constantly on, you know, promoting all the lawfare against President yeah. Trump. I'm right. They just, they, they just. I, I, I do it on t my Twitter feed as journal lawfare trademarked. Um, so, you know, they, the, what the, they do this constantly and they will just, you know, like boil down, they won't show the text of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. They just boil it down to it says any officer, you know, it's a no brainer. President uh, Trump is an officer. Right now, right. even at that level, as as the questioner mentioned, um, there are Supreme Court cases that hold uh, in various areas that the president is actually not, uh, you know, an officer of the United right. States for certain purposes. Right. Uh, and the response to that from sort of the Larry tribes of the world, you know, emeritus professor at Harvard and Judge Ludig, who seems to have completely flipped his mind in, in recent years and become, you know, Trump deranged is, well, there, you know, there are references to the office of the presidency. Yes, but it's a it's a unique office. And especially if you interpret the list in the in the 13th in the 14th, uh, 5th, uh, 14th Amendment, Section three uh, in the way I've described using the the, uh, the canons of interpretation you can't remotely come to the conclusion that the president was supposed to fit into that catch-all box. Uh, absolutely. That, that was, that's, that's exactly, you know, from a, from a common sense perspective and somebody that's operated in the government for decades of my life and read a lot of legalese and all that, that when I read that section, 
That's, that's how I interpret it. It's a hierarchical list. And the president, office of the president of the United States is not an officer of the United States. As a matter right. of fact, officers of the United States all stem from that office at the pleasure of the president. Uh, when you're talking about commissioned officers and warrant officers and those kind of things uh, uh, in the United States of America. Well, before we leave the Colorado subject, let me ask you about that unique stage, Jeff, because it okay. was the uh, and, uh, and, and I want the audience to hear it from you, uh, why I thought it was odd when I read it. It is odd. Hmm. Yeah. That's I've never, I've never seen the likes of it before. And I think it, it, it was done for strategic, uh, political purposes. So let, let me just deal with like a baseline thing. It's been reported, right. That, that this decision was self-stayed by the Colorado Supreme court, uh, mm -hmm. for, uh, until January 4th. But it's actually more complicated than that. So I have the text here if you'll give me a, a chance to read it. So sure. it says, if review is sought in the Supreme Court before the stay expires on January 4th, then the stay shall remain in place and the secretary will continue to be required to include President Trump's name on the 2024 presidential ballot until the receipt of any order or mandate from the Supreme Court. So. Uh, you know, you should go, it's, I think it's on page 10 of 213 of the opinion. You can go uh, look at it yourself. But what they're, what they're saying is that even if you just seek, a, if President Trump just seeks a stay, right, then the stay continues past January 4th. Mm. Now you have to use uh, some external logic because what the, uh, I understand the Colorado Secretary of State has said is that for purposes of the Republican primary ballot, they need to know by January 5th, whether President Trump's going to be on it or not, right? Because there's a whole administrative process. You got to print things up and the like, or I guess these days enter it into a computer system. Um, and so if, if it, it's clear that, that if President Trump seeks cert on, say, January 4th, right, he sought, sought it, so then the stay will not lapse, okay? Right. And that means, you know, under the, the administrative point I'm making about like when they print the ballots or prepare them electronically, however they do it, uh, that um, his name will be on the ballot. So it's almost like the seeking of review arguably self moots the case, right? Because yeah. this, how's the Supreme Court, like that? if I were a Supreme Court justice, I'd be saying to myself, well, he's gonna be on the ballot because they were told, we were told that was the only thing that could happen Maybe that, you know, Colorado Secretary of State will come screaming in and saying like, oh, I've developed an emergency process where I can remove him now, right? So they could try to avoid that. Sure. But, you know, otherwise it just seems like it's been set up to be self-mooted. And if you wanted this to have effect, why would you do anything like that? Why wouldn't you just say, we'll self-stay till January 4th. Then, you know, we're going to do what we say we're going to do in this opinion unless the Supreme Court orders us to stop. That's an ordinary yeah. stay. This is the weirdest stay I've ever seen. And my answer to my own question about why did they do it this way is because I think they realized that like one way or another, this thing is not going to really go into effect. So they're just making a bold political statement. They're dominating the news cycle and they're dirtying up President Trump. That's what they're up to. That is fundamentally illegitimate. It's not the judicial role. It's not judges acting according to their oath uh, to the U.S. Constitution or to the state constitution. Yeah, and as a as an American citizen, a layperson, a, an officer of the United States, because I still have my commission, uh, mm -hmm. it's still good. Uh, uh, it, I'm embarrassed 
uh, because, uh, you know, the judicial system in this country is the crown jewel of what makes America America, in my opinion. Uh, And I don't say that lightly. So uh, it's very concerning uh, that uh, four judges that have esteemed backgrounds and and long careers would take a step like this in the in the partisan political uh, arena in the middle of a presidential election. Yeah, I, I think uh, two things to understand. One is it just seems like a lot of people really, you know, uh, on the left or some even, you know, people who are kind of centrist types, they, that Donald Trump seems to have make them, uh, may, you know, lose their minds. Like, I, I really, I can't explain some of the things they do or say on television or in print or elsewhere, except that they've worked themselves into some kind of artificial panic and frenzy. They can't even understand when, uh, you know, President Trump is asked by, uh, you know, Sean Hannity, uh, will you be a dictator? And he's like, just on day one, right? Like, and, and that, you know, like it, it, it just shows that they're not, they're not playing, they're not, they're not tracking the play. But the second thing, uh, Colonel, is that I don't think people realize how far gone the law schools are. So yeah. since, uh, you know, early in the 20th century, they've been teaching this very destructive school of jurisprudence called legal realism. And legal realism basically argues, as a, as a boil down for your viewers and listeners, that uh, the, the, the judges are just politicians in robes. And whatever they say about complicated doctrines, you know, uh, that some of them, right, the most radical of them would, would be side by side by me and saying, like, you don't really believe that old Latin maxims decide cases like justem generis, right? Like, that's all just smoke and mirrors because Clark's a Republican and he, you know, and then if he, you know, if he or others are on the bench and they use those things, it's just disguised politics, you know, right. like, no, that's not what uh, the law is. It's what it's been perverted into by these people. And because they bought into this very destructive jurisprudential school of thought, legal realism, or then there's even Marxism come to law, it's called critical legal studies. Mm-hmm. They actually think that the ends justify the means. And that now that they wear the black robes, they can be the ones who just use some legal mumbo jumbo to get to the results they want. And it's destructive of the Republic and of our, you know, our whole civic order. And that's the danger of Ketanji Jackson uh, sitting on the Supreme Court right there, in my opinion. Well, I want to get to a couple more cases because uh, one of the ones that may come up to the Supreme Court, they're at least going to hear some arguments, uh, uh, I believe, is about immunity. But I want to play this clip that you did a long post on X about. Uh, with this clown, uh, who I think is an AUSA or was a former government uh, uh, federal lawyer, uh, but uh, he's confused about the co-equal branches of governments uh, and whether the Supreme Court is supreme or what over the presidency. Watch this. Supreme Court, not inferior to the president, but supreme to the president. They're the last stop on you know, saying what is and is not legal, what is and is not constitutional. If a president gets to commit crimes with impunity, they have now elevated him to being above the Supreme Court. They're not going to do it. They love their supreme power, don't they? In fact, if they said a president can commit any and all crimes in office with complete protection against prosecution, Donald Trump could simply order the Supreme Court disbanded. Sure, that might constitute any number of crimes, but if the Supreme Court says that's good to go, are you telling me Donald Trump wouldn't try to dismantle the 
branch of government that is actually supreme to him. Or maybe he would just invite the Supreme Court justices he doesn't like to see him out on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> well, that's clown, uh, former AUSA, I believe, Glenn Kirshner, uh, who uh, doesn't have a clue as to, as to the co-equal branches of government uh, no. and uh, really is suffering from Trump derangement syndrome there. Oh, he, that this man, Donald J. Trump, is going to, uh, you know, try to hurt somebody, have somebody killed or whatever. That's the reference to Fifth Avenue uh, right. from his first campaign. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, absurd. I think maybe the first part of that got a little cut off. So within like one breath, like within 10 seconds, he says that uh, the three branches are co-equal. Now, that's correct. Then he says that the Supreme Court is supreme to President Trump or to any president. Right. right. And they could tell them what to do um, now. The Supreme Court. So. This is a very complicated topic, and actually, one of the the professors who's written most uh, uh, importantly, incisively on this uh, is Michael Stokes Paulson about the fact that if you do have uh, a co-equal set of branches of government, right, you have situations sure. where the president can disagree with the Supreme Court and say, "Well, that's your reading of the uh, of the Constitution, but I disagree," and then Congress can disagree, right? Yeah. What is true about the Supreme Court is that if it takes a particular case or controversy then it can issue an order in that case that is final, okay? But mm -hmm. that's not to elevate them to a process where they are, you know, like Animal Farm, the branch that is more equal than others, right? It's just yeah. a function of the fact that that's the judicial power is to rule in cases or controversies. This is the kind of thing where like Glenn Kirshner is way out of his depth. He doesn't understand these the first thing about these things. And what's scary about the fact that he doesn't really understand the structure of the Constitution, how that is very important, how it's interpreted, how our three branches really work, right? Uh, you know, this guy was in charge really of capital crimes in D.C. Uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, it's a sort of unique fusion of the local, because D.C. is not a state, right? It's an, a, a unique federal enclave, the seat of the federal government. And, and purely federal crimes, right? So if you're charged under 18 USC, where most of the US uh, criminal code provisions are, the US Attorney's Office uh, you know, in DC uh, prosecutes that. But if there's a local law that's adopted under the DC law, local criminal law, like you know, don't steal from the local grocery store, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and punishing that, the, the US Attorney's Office in DC also does those local crimes. Whereas if you're in any other place in the country, you know, a state or local yeah. prosec uh, prosecutor would do the, those, those kinds of crimes. So he did both. But if you, know, if you committed uh, you know, murder or something, whether it's a federal crime, uh, you know, mm -hmm. there are rare uh, cases like that, or more, more often than not, like a local murder where you just gauged in it because you hated somebody or for profit or drugs or something like that. He was like the chief prosecutor of that. So it's really yeah, alarming. Yes. Yeah, it's really alarming that that someone cannot understand, uh, you know, the theory of the Constitution. Like, you know, I, I suspect like he hasn't even read a word of the Federalist Papers. And, it, it, you know, if it did, it was like matter and antimatter and his brain exploded. And what's got him riled up is the potential for this presidential immunity question to be taken up by the court. Uh, uh, if I understood it correctly, you know, yes. do you think they will take that up ultimately after they hear the briefs that they've asked for? I, I think they, they will, uh, uh, you know, I think it's trending in that direction. Let's say that, but I actually don't think they should take it. Right. And the reason is because 
uh, Jack Smith has filed a unique, uh, uh, it's not unique, it's, it's just a, a less uh, well-known, less well-used uh, provision over time in history. It's called cert before judgment, certiorari before judgment. Usually you can only seek certiorari, which is a request, to, you know, most of the Supreme Court's docket is discretionary. They right. decide what cases to take. And that's what a writ of certiorari does. Like it lets them parse out what they're going to take and what they're not going to take. If they grant the writ, they take the case. If they deny the writ, they, they, they uh, don't take the, the case. So um, here, the, the, usually you can only get cert after there is a final judgment from the Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the cert before judgment mechanism lets the Supreme Court skip over the intermediate step of, you know, here the DC Circuit, the DC Court of Appeals. And the issue is, you know, can the showing to be done, to, to, uh, to allow that to be done, can it be made? And the main reason why Jack Smith is asking for uh, this is he's, he's basically positing the March 4th trial date that Judge Chutkin set in the so-called January 6th case against President Trump as, you know, sort of like an immovable uh, object that cannot be changed. And that if that trial date's going to be uh, maintained, you have to grant cert before judgment. Now, I submit that that's hogwash. Like that's an arbitrary date that Judge Chutkin picked. She could have picked a later date, um, but she didn't. Um, and yeah, she has discretion to fix her own docket, set her own docket and, and pick a trial date. But that's not something that once she picks it, that gives the special prosecutor here the option to immediately get cert before judgment review by the Supreme Court. What is the real thing that's driving this? The real thing that's driving this is they want that trial so that they can hurt President Trump in the processes, right? That's why they want this or, or to stop him from getting uh, reelected again in the general election. And so if the trial gets delayed past March 4th, it's Judge uh, Cannon with the documents case in Florida. She's kind of occupied the middle of the chessboard, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't get out of the way. Then Judge Chutkin's got to start looking at dates after that. And then when you start looking at dates after that, it really looks like election interference, right? The summer before the election, while the conventions are going on, she's going to be holding a trial then. Like that's, but that's pretty yeah. serious intervention into the process. So yeah. then, then potentially you may have to wait until after the election. And you know, if if President Trump gets reelected, right, then they know that he could pardon himself and then the whole thing gets mooted. Or even if he doesn't pardon himself, right, uh, you know, a president can't be, uh, you know, tried while in office. He could put it off until, you know, like uh, 2029. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, no, 20, uh, yeah, 20, 2029, the election would be 2028. And then, they, yeah. you know, January 20th, 2029 would be the, the inauguration of the new president. So that's, right. that's what's really driving this. And 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 uh, Jack Smith cannot say that out loud. He can't say the quiet part out loud and say, well, this is all about, you know, political interference. Therefore, I got to keep my trial date. Don't you understand? You know, I think that the, the left on the court, uh, justices on the court, they understand that that's what this is about. Right. But yeah. you even had uh, Ellie Honig, right, who's a uh, left wing commentator, one of these, you know, prosecutor guys doing uh, journal lawfare. Uh, on on CNN with Michael Smirkanish admitting that that's really the game here, right? I was actually, you know, put put one in, in uh, Ellie Honig's uh, column, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Glenn Kirshner would never admit something like that, but you know, Honig is at least uh, you know objective enough to to realize and say like that's the game that's going on, just so everybody knows. Oh, it certainly is. I mean, uh, Smith's even 
what appears to be disobeying check and stay uh, on all the, the, the deliverables uh, over the last couple of days uh, and, uh, and, uh, and on Canon's too, because Canon has stayed uh, the procedural deliverables and everything until they see what's going on with the January 6th trial. Uh, so it's uh, very interesting uh, what's going on. It's also another indicator that the judicial system and the and the justice system are really uh, have been uh, uh, very politicized. Uh, and, you know, the average citizen's take on it is exactly that, Jeff. Well, what about? Uh, well, let me let me go to the audience. I got a hand up over here real quick for a question, and then I want to talk about the obstruction of an official proceeding uh, appeal that they're going to take up. Go ahead. Uh, over there, Kat and Shell, with uh, whoever's got their hand up. Go ahead, Fred. Good afternoon, uh, Colonel and Jeff. Uh, Jeff, I just want to know, I know we can't really look into these people's minds, but how can they be so smart on one hand and so dumb on the other when he quotes this stuff? Uh, is it intentional just to make excite, you know, to excite people? And another thing is, if the Supreme Court is, is apt to pick this case up, do you think Del Rude brought rule broadly where this can't be re re uh, uh reinstituted by another state so i i think that they that's one reason why they should take this even given the weird you know uh self-mooting stay process that the colorado supreme court tried to uh to to put in there because you just can't have a system where you have 50 different states uh, having you know 50 different ballots, right? It negates the whole idea of having uh, a national election. And so, you know, one of the main features of the Supreme Court is that it's designed to ensure uniformity of federal law, right? Um, and uh, you know, they don't, they, they can't contradict the Colorado Supreme Court on on Colorado state law. And there were significant Colorado state law issues uh, that actually occupied two of the three dissents in this case, uh, too, and then obviously, uh, of course, occupies part of the majority opinion. The Supreme Court can't take those, but what it can do is take and provide uniformity on federal law questions. And uh, I think they should do that. because We, we don't want to have a situation where there's like a new Supreme Court case related to some new state Supreme Court case that tries to kick Trump off the ballot every month or so. I mean, that's like chaos. So it this is one where there is an objective basis to take it and decide it early. Whereas I think the March 4th trial date is just an arbitrary date. It's like a date you could throw a uh, dart at a dartboard and like pick a, a calendar, pick a date, right? That that can't be some kind of like immovable anchor point that dictates how the Supreme Court proceeds. But if you're in this risk of having a balkanized system where like you have 50 different ballots, that's chaos. I think the Supreme Court has to step in. And I, I think uh, uh, caller that I, I missed the first part of your question. I think you had a slightly different first part of your question. Fred, did you get it? Yeah, yes, I did. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say with this, with this ADA on, on the network, when he has a complete dish, you know, uh, a complete, um, take different take or, or not educated take, how can someone be so smart and so stupid in the same sentence? So is, the, is this intentional just to incite people uh, against against Trump or or is he that is he? You know, and I know we can't look into his mind, but what is your take on that? So I think that uh, he is smarter than some of the journal lawfare practitioners um, and he knows what he knows. Right. He teaches. Uh, 
criminal law, maybe criminal process as well at GW Law School here in, in the district. Um, so he, he does know those things well. Uh, he gives little tutorials to people. He's always spinning it in a, in a mega anti-Trump direction, right? But there are certain things like when he starts talking about jurisdictional issues, when he talks about removal to federal court issues, when he talks about uh, the Constitution structure, right? Like he he just has never had to deal with those things. And actually, I'm I'm sorry to report to you, having you know been at Maine Justice in two different stints, one in the Trump administration and one in the Bush 43 administration, that in my dealings with uh, assistant U.S. attorneys. Um, you know, I find that they know the criminal code, the federal criminal code well. Uh, they can know Supreme Court case law about criminal law particularly well. But if you start talking about general constitutional restrictions, uh, you know, the structure of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, like they're they're kind of out of their depth. Um, you know, I think Ellie Honig is is more uh, objective. I'll give you another example of someone who's not a lawyer, right? Who I caught recently on something silly where uh, Lawrence O'Donnell was saying that, uh, you know, the FCC has uh, no jurisdiction over uh, cable television. And, you know, so I just sent him like, here's the FCC's page where they link all the regulations that relate to cable television. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And he never responded on the merits. He's just like, come on my show and debate me, right? Where I would not have a debate about uh, FCC regulation of television. I would have a debate about um, him attempting to bring me down and you know wage the 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 journal lawfare against me directly. So he's dim. He he's at the dim end of the spectrum, right? Glenn Kirshner, I put like a little more past uh, the center part of the spectrum to to educated, but they're they're kind of black holes in his legal knowledge, where he's out of his depth. And, and Jeff, you know, as we move into this, uh, what I want to ask you about this obstruction of official proceeding law, 1512, I think it's called. Is there an ar just an army of, uh, uh, of lawyers in the federal government right now that are willing to try any novel legal theory? Because that's what this obstruction of official proceeding, to my mind and to, and to my viewers, and we're all, none of us are attorneys, we're just citizens that are concerned and watching this stuff. Uh, that uh, that it's it's a very nefarious effort, just focused at taking down uh, one man's opportunity to get back into power who represents us. Right. Um, I think that's right. And then on the obstruction of official proceeding, this is 18 U.S.C. 1512 C. Two. It was adopted in the wake of the Enron scandal with Arthur Anderson kind of destroying documents. So you know, right. allegedly. Uh, you know, on behalf of Enron. And, you know, that was seen as a loophole sort of going after them, right? The documents weren't being destroyed by Enron directly. Uh, and so they created this uh, new crime, which talks about otherwise obstructing an official proceeding after it talks about, you know, blocking witnesses, yeah. maybe threatening them or destroying documents, right? So it's the same thing. You got a list and the list should be understood to relate back to the character of what it is you start with, which yeah. are things that relate to evidence gathering, right? That's what obstruction of justice is about. It's historically what it's always been about. Right. Other canons come into play here too to reach the same outcome that the statute doesn't apply. Namely, you have to have fair notice of a criminal statute. What does it mean? Um, you know, that, that what does it actually prohibit? What does the ordinary person look at and think this would prohibit? 
And historically, looking at obstruction of justice, you would never think it would apply to going to vent your First Amendment rights uh, up at the Capitol. And then there's yet another canon. There's a canon called the rule of lenity, which is even if you were in a situation where a criminal law is ambiguous, you should be saying, well, then it doesn't, if it's, if it's applied to this situation and it's ambiguous, whether it does or not, then don't apply it, right? Like you got to give people the fair notice. So rewrite the statute to make it clear. Um, so, you know, this, the, you're right, uh, Colonel, it looks like there are people who are just, and it goes back to this like pernicious legal realism idea. They're just like, yeah. they want to nail uh, Trumpers or President Trump. And so they just go back and they start scouring the code. And somebody looked at this and they're like, Eureka, I can use this because I can just ignore all the contacts and I can just say that, uh, you know, there was a January 6th certification process. The people, or maybe some of them, wanted to aim to obstruct that. Therefore, it's an obstruction of an official proceeding. And, and we know it, if you, that were the interpretation of obstruction of an official proceeding, why didn't they prosecute the protesters against Justice Kavanaugh, right? Why didn't yeah. they prosecute Linda Sarsour, who was just at the Capitol complaining about uh, Palestine and uh, the war with Israel, right? Mm -hmm. they, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, then that's also selectively applied. Like it's another cornucopia of legal problems with this obstruction statute. And I think the Supreme Court took that case, it's called the Fisher case. I think they took that case to reverse. Now, now, what happens to two of the charges that Trump is faced with under Jack Smith's uh, uh, prosecution uh, on the January 6th trial are related to that, aren't they? What happens yes. with that, that whole case it, if, uh, if they reverse that? If the Supreme Court uh, reverses and says that 1512 doesn't apply in this circumstance, right, then they don't even have to say anything directly about President Trump's case, right? That will become right. the precedent, the national precedent. President Trump's lawyers will go to Judge Chuckett and say, like, these charges got to be dismissed, Your Honor, right? And then I, I think that that, uh, you know, guts the case because I think everything ties to this narrative, this theory that President Trump ginned up January 6th, then he riled up the crowd once they arrived, right? Like there's, there's the original text message, Glenn Kirshner, play, you know, to mention him, plays it all the time of, you know, I think the, yes, the the anniversary, three-year anniversary of that text of come to DC, you know, be there, be wild uh, was yesterday. Yeah. And so they say that's the ginning of it up, right? It's just like pre, uh, uh, you know, pre-meditation. Then yeah. he gave the, the speech urging violence on January 6th. Then the violence happened. Then he sat in the dining room off the Oval Office and he did nothing, violating his take care clause duties, right? This is their whole theory. So mm. if they can't, you know, use the hammer of this uh, obstruction of an official proceeding statute, right, it right. really kind of pulls the guts out of their own case. And, you know, I think that a fair judge would entertain uh, a motion to dismiss the whole thing and kind of send them back to the drawing board. But, um, you know, it remains to be seen what will actually happen if the Supreme Court reaches that result in Fisher. Yeah, it's a crapshoot, as they say. Uh, well, uh, lawfare against Donald Trump and and his supporters uh, specifically is just one part of the lawfare, uh, Jeff. Uh, I'm going to take one more question from the audience, and then I want to talk about, I'm going to show a little clip uh, uh, from Eagle Pass, Texas, and talk about the lawfare that DHS is practicing on all American citizens that I mentioned in my opening. Uh, go ahead, Kat. I think uh, Truth's got a, a question there. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, great space uh, caught the tail end of it, Colonel. But, uh, you know, I was just over at Mario's face. 
and uh, you know the normie folks justifying the actions of the left. I'm wondering if anyone else has seen it, including DeSantis supporters. No surprise. But their justification is this. It's no big deal. It's a stay till the 4th of January. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of the ruling by six Republicans and two Dems, I'm hearing. I haven't vetted that, but digressing. They're just saying, oh, it's it's a simple matter of the law. And to the uh, speaker's point, yes, J6 is being used. We're not hearing anything about 2020, the summer of rage, the $2 billion worth of damages, et cetera, never applies to them. But we're actually being told, oh, just relax. This is just part of the process yep. that the Supreme Court, <laughs> if they pass the decision that it's within the right of Colorado, we should support it. If they don't, they're willing to support that too. Isn't that something? Now it's all the it's all following following the letter of the law. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I think Jeff's answered a little bit of that already. <laughs> yeah. I, look, I'll I'll observe to that of yeah, like you know, just just be still, uh, you know, uh, Lamb, while we, uh, you know, slit your throat, or Samson, you know, uh, you know, goes to sleep and Delilah cuts his hair off, right? And he wakes up and he's like, wow, I don't have any power anymore. Um, you know, I shouldn't, shouldn't have, uh, you know, disobeyed. Look, we have a constitution that yes, it has a process. It has a process that includes the Supreme court, but we were never intended to be ruled by, uh, the Supreme court. We are a, uh, free people. And that's why the constitution begins with the words, we, the people, right. And so we, we need to, uh, demand our ability to, uh, seek to vote, uh, in free and fair elections for the president of our choosing. And, you know, the Supreme Court has all kinds of doctrines that recognize uh, the validity of, of kind of not interfering with uh, democratic processes and realizing that courts are inherently, uh, you know, restricted in their powers. It's why uh, the framers called it the least dangerous branch, right? It has uh, neither uh, force nor will, but only judgment. So force is in the executive branch, and you know, Colonel, you're you're part of that force, uh, even still with your commission. And uh, will is Congress, you know, passing laws to create the will to devise new mechanisms and make things illegal or legal. Uh, and then you have, you know, the Supreme Court. They're just exercising judgment, trying to call balls and strikes. But if you don't realize that this case is is unique in the history of our country, it represents a dangerous threat of lawfare that threatens our liberty and the very nature of the republic, then you're asleep. This isn't something where, you know, the Supreme Court's deciding what, uh, you know, section 111.2B uh, Romanet 5 means uh, as to, you know, what your 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 uh, uh, obligation is in terms of, uh, you know, registering a drone, right? Like this is a yeah. earth shattering constitutional case. And it's not something where you just go to sleep and say, oh, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've offloaded that uh, to the Supreme Court. They they can decide that. Whatever, however they come out, I'll be happy. That that my shouldn't answer, be your attitude. My answer to those people that have that attitude, uh, Greg, is uh, uh, is uh, be better citizens. Come on, man. <laughs> exactly. Be better citizens. It's a citizens' uh, government, and uh, we need to insist that we 
have the power and that we use our power appropriately within the system. But let me show this video clip from Eagle Pass, Texas real quick, Jeff, because I want to get your take on uh, how the government is using lawfare against us on behalf of illegal aliens. It's the 18th of December. We're out here uh, at the point of entry. 5,000 are sitting on the ground right now. It's increasing as we, as we go along. Information that we've received says another 7,000 should be processed through this particular point by morning. Uh, Joe and I have been here many times. Last time we were down here, we were in uniform. And now I'm a civilian and uh, in the army of God. So uh, we'll keep t telling truths. And uh, you need to get this video to your legislators and tell them in the state of Texas particularly, this is out of control. Thank you very much. Doc Chambers from uh, Eagle Pass, Texas. That was Doc Chambers, Eagle Pass, Texas, as you just heard him say there uh, from uh, two days ago. Uh, and uh, I, I saw a tweet just before we came on from Michael Yan that said there were at least eight or 9,000 more there since that video was shot. Over 12,000 uh, people uh, that are in that area. And uh, when you look at the video, you see soldiers, Customs and Border Patrol, and they're, they're facilitating things. They're not stopping anything. Uh, and, and it just amazes me. And I wanted to get your take on this because I know you guys at Center for Renewing America talk about it a lot. Is What can we as citizens, uh, what we should we be doing and looking for to try to put a stop to this and hold the government officials from the president on down accountable for not executing the laws of the land properly? Because that's what's really happening. Right. So let me let me put it into two categories. First is this is clearly an organized invasion coming across our southern border. And we have two organizations and they each have their own website. So I mentioned the citizen site. That's where the 14th Amendment paper is. But we also have the Center for Renewing America site, americarenewing.com. On yeah. that site, you can find several papers about the invasion of the southern border and why, uh, you know, in, in something that's sometimes, sometimes called the self-help provision of the Constitution, the border states like Texas and Arizona can actually repel that invasion because the federal government is not doing its job to, to do that. Um, so, and this is a very organized process, NGOs and international NGOs and, you know, Soros money, et cetera, are being used to, to bring these people up. They've created an entire pipeline. And then, you know, they, they support the people, you know, the government supporting them, putting on planes. I sat next to, uh, you know, a young mother and her child and, you know, I felt for them at a human level, but on the other hand, right, like I, I kind of got, uh, particularly since the government took my phone, uh, uh, Colonel, I, you know, I have a, a sort of lesser generation iPhone and I'm looking at them, you know, both of them with brand new iPhones provided mm -hmm. by the government. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're misusing the asylum laws of the United States. Right. You yeah. know, if you're a, a Soviet, former Soviet dissident or something, that's kind of what the asylum laws are for. Or if you're a, a, a people group that, you know, is kind of uh, narrow and insular as the Supreme Court sometimes uses that term. Uh, you know, that they could say if they were being persecuted in their home country because they were a, a minority there, uh, that they need uh, asylum for that reason, right? But it's not designed to just be like, come one, come all. Like, we're richer here in the U.S. and we have a big public welfare system and you can get on the dole here. That's not a proper reason for asylum. And they're just flooding the system, 
you know, so because they know that there aren't enough immigration judges and the whole system's overwhelmed, they get, uh, you know, documents that say, come back for your immigration hearing, you know, five years from now, right? So it's just, it's yeah. a joke. And then in terms of the, of the, there's a whole lawfare component of this too. So when I was in the Trump administration, I had the, you know, the pleasure or the burden of running two divisions that are the constant, you know, sort of defending places for lawfare. One was the environment division. You can't do anything in the environmental area where, you know, 10 NGOs, environmental NGOs, green groups show up and sue you to try to block it if you're trying to enforce the law, use the law properly, recognize its limits and, and deregulate. Same thing in the immigration area. So when I took over the civil division, that's where immigration law is. You know, you can't do anything like, you know, uh, a remain in Mexico uh, process, try to do something about, you know, this, uh, you know, family separation issue, try to do something about like people carrying diseases across the border. You do that, like you get sued by, you know, a, a dozen uh, NGOs, uh, you know, that do immigration work. And they're often represented by big law firms, um, you know, where people are making a lot of money and the associates are making a lot of money pro bono, right? So you're wow. just like, is, this isn't good for the country. So you got the lawfare element, you got the just disregard of, of, the, uh, of the law and the oaths by uh, the Biden administration officials. And so we, you know, you need to urge your uh, governors, if you're in border states, to take action uh, under the the self-help clause and repel the invasion. But I think, that, you know, the other main thing you need to do is you need to call on your members of the House to uh, include in the impeachment process the uh, total destruction of our border. Um, and there need to be hearings about that. I think Mayorkas should be impeached as well for this derogation of duty. I think, you know, you're, you get, you've got to put on pressure wherever you can find it. And I think the main places you can put it on are in Congress in connection with impeachment and in uh, your state, uh, border state governments, Texas, Arizona, to repel the invasion. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Jeff. You know, we're out of time, unfortunately. This was a very fast hour, uh, and I do so appreciate your time. Uh, tell folks where they can find you. Uh, and Center for Renewing America. It's critically important. I try to drive people to, to uh, CRA's uh, sites all the time because of the different policies, papers, and plans that are out there uh, that uh, folks that listen in this audience are supportive of. They need to know where they're at. Sure. Well, uh, thanks again, uh, Colonel. So I am Jeff Clark US on X Twitter uh, and uh, Getter, and at Real Jeff Clark uh, on Truth Social. The Center for Renewing America is americarenewing.com. Um, and if I could, since I'm also personally being subjected to uh, this lawfare, uh, being seen as adjacent to President Trump, yep. please consider uh, a donation or sending a prayer through Give, Send, Go. Uh, my uh, site there is givesendgo.com slash Jeff Clark, J-E-F-F-C-L-A-R-K. Well, this audience is very generous, sir, and we will certainly help you out. And uh, we're not only that, but we're praying for you and we're, we support you. Uh, there are thousands of volunteers signing up for things like Project uh, 2025 uh, with the Heritage Foundation to volunteer for the next administration. And I think we'll have an army of America first types uh, to help you. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you, Colonel. And, uh, you know, uh, keep up the good work. You had a great show here. Thank you. and God bless you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Well, that was uh, former uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, Jeff Clark.
great man. Uh, as he mentioned, he is uh, suffering from uh, the lawfare personally himself. Uh, so go help him out as at his Gibson go. Uh, and uh, this will be the last show of 2023 for the Rob Mana Show. We will be back in early January. And at the end of January, we'll be back on a network. We just confirmed it today. We'll be live four days a week, Monday through Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern with our X Spaces audience live uh, once again. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Uh, if you get the video, the crawler's got all the promos on it. Uh, uh, we're, uh, we've got promo codes, Manus at faithandfreedoms.com over at Matt Couch's site there at uh, mypillow.com with Mike Lindell. Get your Christmas presents. And, of course, beardbet.com, which is Beardbet copied. Every time you make a purchase with Beardbet, they make a donation to a veteran's charity. So uh, check them out. It's right there, and you can follow us on all the social media. It's on the crawler if you get the video, and we'll get the video out for this show uh, pretty quickly now. Until then, I'm Rob Manus. God bless you. Merry Christmas, and God bless America. <laughs>